and I can even see myself in the top corner. So from this point on, anything I say can be taken down and used in evidence against me. <laughs> <laughs> you have been warned. Hello and welcome to Outdoor Instructor Chat. My name is Niall from Instructor 101. For outdoor instructors that want to make an even bigger impact on those that they work with. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with Ray Goodwin. For those that don't know him, Ray holds an MIC or a Mountaineering Instructor Certificate, who's also the first to be assessed in all three of the British Canoe Union's level five coach in inland kayak, sea kayaking, and canoeing. And on top of all that, in 2019, he was awarded an MBE for services to canoeing. And these are just some of his many achievements. So a big thanks to Ray for taking the time to chat. Now I've made sure to include lots of links to everything that we discuss in the show notes to make sure to check that out as well, but also to Ray's website and his YouTube channel. So make sure to look at those as well. Other than that, let's get on with the show. Enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome to Outdoor Instructor Chat. So today I'm joined by the one and only Ray Goodwin, uh, the man who needs no introduction. Except so, don't know me. <laughs> uh, apart from those that don't know him. So in that case, Ray, I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, uh, well, Ray Goodwin. Um, what, what am I? Started is it, like is it uh, Ray Goodwin? Sorry? Is it Sir Ray Goodwin now? No, no, but, you know, I did notice you didn't you didn't tug your forelock. It's merely an MBE. So I, I didn't get the sword treatment at the palace. Um, oh, right, just okay. just 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 a handshake and, you know, the the medal pinned to my chest and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Very uh, well. uh, but my daughter got to see somebody get knighted, which she really, really enjoyed. Um, but but you know I'll come back to that because there's something really funny in the in the in the middle of that that all that business. Yeah, I mean the M the MBE is sort of the from what I've done in paddle sport. It actually says for canoeing, um, and that's I think they might be trying to tell me my career is over. Yeah, have a medal, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, I, I, you know, I've got no outdoor pursuits people in the family before me. Um, yeah. We weren't farming folk, but we li lived on the edge of farming. And I, I just was adventurous, you know, a bunch of lads, all the same age, you know, from eight, nine years old, we were out on the fields. As we got older, the farmer would let us build dens in the barn. We we actually made our own ropes. I had a, I had a book about kids going caving and I had some diagrams. So I, we made our own ropes out of baler twine. Amazing. We were absolutely, yeah, we were absolutely crap at the knots, though. And I remember dangling off the ground when the one on my feet bloody dropped. We made ladders and everything. And uh, we were allowed to build dams, chop down trees, um, light the biggest bonfires that we yeah, They were huge bonfires. And, and then we moved. You know, when I was 16, we moved and I joined a Venture Scout unit. Um, and somebody took me rock climbing. And they took me up, uh, up into the mountains of Snowdonia um, in winter. Pretty crap leadership. I nearly didn't come back from that. But um, caving, tiny bit of kayaking. And it just blew my mind away. And I was a reader. I, I love reading. So when I couldn't go and do these things. So I'm reading about these amazing adventures, Herman Bourne, um, and, uh, 
his ascent of Nanga Parbat and the fact that he walked around with snowballs in his hands to acclimatise his hands to winter climbing. Uh, and that's why I used to walk around with snowballs in my hands, you know, the, the sort of stupid things you do as a teenager and, well, into my 20s even, to acclimatise my hands. And, you know, I did other things. You know, I was fanatical. I became a fanatical climber, you know, sort of middling, not 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 sort of groundbreaking in the slightest. But, you know, I, I, I um, did masses of rock climbing. I've done ice climbs out in, in Africa on Kenya um, and Kilimanjaro. They've gone. Um, had a go at the troll wall, but abbed off in bad weather. So, you know, I have this mountaineering background. Um, and then I actually applied to join the British Antarctic Survey. And back in those days, you'd go down for two and a half years. So I really, really fancied that. But got yeah. an interview, but it's one post. I didn't get it. And that was the turning point because I went to work in an outdoor centre in North Wales. And the, you know, it's a very male dominated industry then. So when I say the lads, you know, the, yeah. thank goodness the industry has changed, but it was very male dominated. And the blokes there, a lot of them were very keen climbers, adventurers, but they were also big kayakers. And they got fed up and going out in the pouring rain to climb with me because, you know, oh, it's raining. Well, we'll go and do, we'll go and do this hard, severe on uh, milestone buttress because it's always wet. So let's go and do that. But I nearly drowned my chief instructor uh, uh, going up the devil's kitchen in absolutely torrential rain. On the final pitch, I was having to duck me at one point. I was having to duck my head out of the water to get breath and then go back to the climbing. And and it was just, yeah, people said, this, this, is, this isn't Omre. You're coming paddling. So they took me kayaking, river kayaking, and I became very adept at swimming down rivers. You know, the, the, you know they would check, you know, they'd have a bet who's going to swim first. But and there was really good sea kayakers, so I got into sea kayaking as well. And eventually I started staying in my boat and becoming competent. But it was also an incredibly adventurous period. There were no guidebooks. So we'd be thinking we're doing the first descent of a Welsh river. And I need to find that it'd been 10, 10 years before by somebody else. And, and so you just went, oh, there's some blue. That looks the right. Yeah, let's go and have a play. So some great, great people to be around. And then the sea kayaking took off as well. Because in the summer, if I was off on a day myself, I could just put the boat on the roof, go and have a huge adventure. Um, and I, I, I did think in the end I was doing things like paddle around Anglesey in a single day, you know, 70 odd miles. Um, and eventually I wanted to do, I, I kept seeing this film of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado. I thought, oh, bloody hell, that looks horrendous. That looks horrendous. It was the first British descent of the Grand Canyon. And then I heard two Americans had swum the length of it. And I thought, well, if they can swim, I'm a good swimmer. I've swum most things in North Wales. So I put, <laughs> so I put, put together a trip down the Grand Canyon and I didn't swim. Um, by the end of the trip, it got really silly because, you know, like everybody, if, if your mates were down the bottom of the rapid and they signaled to you, they were signaling left. Was it the safe line was on the left? Or was it the gnarly hole that you were going to swim out of was on the left and they were trying to get you in it for the laugh value. So you were trying to guess them as to, to, to what was going on. I saw a mate run over by a raft on flat water and he attempted to roll, but he was all that appeared was his paddle to the side of the raft. He didn't realise he was still under it. The raft guy got 500 points for that. You know, it was that, that was like classic wipeout. So I've got, so I've got all this background and, you know, I've, I've been, 
yeah, became very competent. You know, I've paddled in Nepal as well. Uh, Grand Canyon, I've done did, did a trip in these estates, lots in the Alps, lots in Scotland. But then in my late 30s, a guy called Lord Collins was working with me, or mid-late 30s, and he was an exceptional, well, Lol is an exceptional character, one of the best in the country, um, and a top outdoor educationist. You know, he's, he's, he's got his PhD on coaching theory to do with canoeing and adventure sports. Wow. Um, he's a doctor. I've asked him to have a look at me, uh, my complaints and bits and pieces. I said, not that sort of doctor. Uh, but he was a canoeist as well, and he, we went, we had a canoe available, so we went canoeing. But we weren't afraid of the water, as you can imagine, because we were paddling class five in kayak. Anything you're going to paddle in a traditional canoe isn't going to scare you in the same way. And I sort of worked on the principle that, well, if I if I'm, I, I realised I was paddling with some really top people, and we were pushing and pushing, and into the situations where swims aren't really a good idea at all. Yep. Uh, you're on the sort of water where swims are not good. And I'm thinking this is this is getting really serious. And I really re- sort of reasoned that anything I did in canoe, I could swim to the side. Yeah, it's yep. not in the same league. Now, the only thing you've got to do that is I did the first crossing of the Irish Sea in a canoe. Swimming to the side from the middle of the Irish Sea is not a practical proposition. So my my logic behind taking to the canoe sort of goes out the window. Um and, and so the canoe just gradually took over. Now, in the, this latter part of my career, you know, I've canoed a lot in uh, North America, in Scandinavia, uh, south of France. Um, so in this in this latter part of my career, as the body begins to break up, you know, I'll, I'll be 68 this year. The You know, I gave up working on ice in the mid-50s. Um, I gave up whitewater kayak tuition and about two years ago I stopped doing the sea kayak guiding uh, I just wasn't doing enough to keep fit for it so now I'm I'm down to the canoe and, and I have just a massive love of the craft and then of course going alongside all of this I'm a coach I'm a guide and I differentiate between the two They're, they sometimes cross over um, and that's one of the things in this industry I'm always concerned that People don't know when they should be guiding and when they should be coaching, and they don't slip between the roles as they should. But you know, we can we can chat about that. So the, like yeah, the yeah, huge, yeah. this huge experience background, and because of doing things at a relatively high level in a lot of disciplines, there's a lot of cross fertilization. Well, all the mental things are the same. The visualization is the same. Yeah. Uh, the psychological effects are all the same, um, and so. All those things, and I often talk to people about when I'm doing eddies in a canoe, that I learned so much about going into eddies from two disparate craft, tight, steep creeks and a kayak where you've got to be very precise, and then going into massive eddies on tide races in a sea kayak. If you get it wrong there, your sea kayak just sits in the whirlpools and the boils on the eddy lines, and you bring all that experience to bear on the canoe, which is, you know, my passion, if you like. So that's that's a broad quick career or, or a you know experience outline and then of course in my mid-30s I started working for myself went self-employed one of the earliest you know there weren't many of us who were self-employed in that period you know 30 30 more years ago and and you know 
worked on all through that working on ice all the different disciplines and again just gradually coming down and I work I constantly I work with everything to this day from everybody from an absolute beginner to people that other people would regard as an expert and I work from working on the canal to 14-day wilderness trips in Canada so it's, it's just this huge breadth of of um, of coaching and guiding yeah so but I'm very aware that I'm at the tail end of my career and I'm into what I would call my end game. You know, how can I see, see out the next year is enjoy myself, do the things I want to do. And yeah. I'd, still, I'd still learn new things. Yeah. yeah. So there you are. That's fired, that's fired back at you now. <laughs> Come up with Yeah, that. blimey. What, <laughs> what an intro. But, and, and obviously on top of all this, so... I'll make sure that, that everyone knows this as, as well for those that are listening. But obviously, the, there's other stuff that you do as well. So I'll make sure there's um, well, there's there's links to to your website and your your coaching work as well, um, but also to to your book as well because you wrote a, a book on on co- yeah, um, yeah. canoeing oh. as well. There it is on camera on cue. <laughs> Ready to go. <laughs> Well, I've done several of these interviews now, one of these chats, and I forgot to have things. So I'm going, well, where's that? And I thought this time I'll be at least semi-prepared. Um, I'm not a natural author. I really am not. Um, I, I, I'm a prevaricator when it comes to writing. And I hold the record with Pez de Press, who published it. I hold the record for having a contract to, to supply a text and the photographs and still doing it. They've had people longer but they've never produced the book. And it, and it was just like, it ate away at me. It is one of those things I had to do to put my knowledge, my thoughts out there, my way of thinking, my way of looking at it. And that's the, the we just looked at the cover of the second edition. And it's not a big change from the first, you know, there's sort of 20, 28 extra pages, but, it, but I would call it the director's cut. Um, the first edition, we were constrained more the, the publisher Pesta Press had never done a book like it and yeah. the sheer amount of photographs they'd never done the landscape book before it always been portrait so it's a big thing for them and so at a certain point they constrained me and when we did the second edition the things that were missing from the first which is what well, I gave gave Frank a one bit I gave him this um, section I said I think we should have this in the second edition he said oh that's really good I didn't tell him he turned it down on the first edition it was exactly <laughs> well the same the same concept same photographs I said no i don't think that should be in there right and i used it pretty well exactly what i provided the first time but the book had been successful i mean it's an outdoor book let's be this yeah and and the world's changing hence the youtube channel now yes which is fantastic by the way like yeah I, thank you i've got so much of it and uh it's it's something that kind of that helps motivate me as well to well, not just to create videos, but actually to, to get out more myself as well. So I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend anyone listening, if, you, if you're not aware of it, make sure to check out Ray's uh, videos uh, as well, because they're, they're so informative, there's so much value there. Um, yeah, it, it really is brilliant. But that, but that again is, you know, and it, it, this is something for, you know, you, you've, you've talked about younger instructors coming into the sport, providing a resource to them. And sometimes they watch people like me and it looks easy. You know, the writing a book, you know, I'm constantly writing articles. Uh, there's, a, there's an article in the Welsh magazine this month. There's an article in 
uh, Paddler magazine this month. And there's a lot of pain in all of this. And, you know, so with the YouTube channel, I'm learning to edit, learning to actually build a channel was painful. And I, I remember trying to do something. I've just moved over to Final Cut Pro X from iMovie. And it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Um, you know, it's like there were three days trying to solve one simple thing. Now, if we hadn't had lockdown, I could have gone to Manchester and Apple and said, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? And I had a lesson. And I may still go. But it took me three days of going round in circles, which when now I'm putting a video together, that job takes me five minutes. But three yeah. days to learn to do it. And it's some and people say, Ray, you're really good at tech. Not really, but I, I very often, like my climbing, like my paddling, I, I, I see an objective. My objective is to be uh, an MIC, you know, the old money of mountaineering instructor. So I'm not only am I out there climbing, but I will redirect some of my energy into getting that. Um, I want to I want to um, do this trip. OK, well, I'll do the, you know. And the same, same, you know, the Grand Canyon was like that. There's my idea. I want to do it. How am I going to do it? Um, yeah. and, and the same with, with the YouTube channel. I wanted to put my ideas out there. Now, whether I ever earns any money, real, realistic money, is a totally different ball game. But I, I think it's this thing of I want, I want this. How do I get there? And yeah. there's a very old, you know, with, with instructors, teachers, a very old fashioned and incorrect way of splitting uh, learner styles, you know, sort of your reflector, your pragmatist. Um, and they do the four styles, but they miss the fifth. Stubborn bastard learner. <laughs> and and, and that, that counts for more than anything. You know, I'm, I'm a mix of all the four styles. Anybody that's any good is a mix of all the four styles. Yeah. But there's also, you've got to be a stubborn bastard. You know, some people really, really pick some things up easily. And then there's people like me who, when you watch me in action, make it look easy. But it wasn't easy to learn. And I, I'd say that goes across the physical skills, um, the technical skills, the writing and any, anything like that. So the sheer effort that goes into these things. Yeah. And again, I'm driven, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. I want to leave, you know, I'm having fun. I'm, it's, it, it, it appeals to the creative side of me, but some of those videos, <laughs> they're earning pennies and they're, you know, they're taking me, you know, I did one on surfing, but, I had the really good quality film, but I didn't have a clear way through in my head. So I probably spent two days going around in circles trying to work out how I was going to put it together. Once I got the idea, it was easy. But none of these things, this is the art of anything that's good, you know, it looks easy, but it wasn't necessarily yeah. easy. So there you go. That is, it's fascinating. Like I can, I can definitely relate to the YouTube side of things, definitely. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into the background of learning anything, isn't there? And Absolutely. I, I really I really like the I really like the the concept of the the stubborn bastard learner. Like that's yeah. it, it's so true. I think is if you're motivated enough, like you're gonna 
you're going to work towards it, aren't you? Assume you know which direction you want to go in, of course. Yes, yeah. Now, this is another thing with my my career at this point, is that I'm getting people who come to me because of a reputation, not because of a British canoeing award or qualification. And in fact, many of them won't have ever heard of British canoeing. So they will heard of me because of a book, they've liked the book. If they don't like the book, they're not going to come to me. So, you know, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they like my style on YouTube and that's now generating work. Yeah. But YouTube is me. You know, I'm not putting up a false image of what I am. Um, It's my humour, my way of talking, my way of explaining. If they like it, then they're considered coming to me. If they don't like that style, they're not going to come to me. So, again, the people who come to me are sold on the idea of Ray Goodwin and the way he, he, he works with that. Um, but but this thing with this, if I call this stubborn style of learning, and this is a thing as a coach, I had a, I had a customer this last, started about three years ago, and he nearly died on uh, Derwent water. He bought a kayak, and his second time out, he went on his own, he went out onto Derwent water. He does a lot of things on his own. I mean, this is a guy who cycled across America. He goes on big cycle rides. He goes out to the Far East and cycle rides. He's used to doing things on his own. And socially, he doesn't always get on well with people. So if he joins a group, he doesn't always fit in. But this incident on Derwent Water, second time he went out, it's November. um, And he gets in his boat. It's a little touring kayak. And he sets out, but there's an offshore wind. And suddenly he's being blown out and he's blown out and he's blown out, but it's a strong enough wind and it is a strong wind. There are waves building pretty quickly. And of course, he has no idea. Ends up in the water holding the boat. No idea what to do. There's no one on the water. And and the wind is strong enough holding on the boat. It's taking him across the lake. Now, that's a strong wind and it's November. And he, at a certain point, accepted that he was dead. He wasn't going to make it. And he must have been close to dying. And then he got really lucky. Somebody spotted him from the shore. Dog walker, somebody out like that. Second bit of luck, not only were they local, but they knew the marina. So they didn't phone the emergency services, they phoned the marina. And the marina put a powerboat out quickly. And they got to him. And he was so far gone. And you know this thing, when somebody's vertical in the water, there's pressure on the legs and the body adjusts. And when you pull him out of the water, you drop the blood pressure catastrophically on occasions. And he actually went unconscious when they pulled him from the water. So he, oh, must, have very, he must have been close. And of course, he's in a buoyancy aid. So the moment he becomes unconscious in the water, he's dead. He's going to drown. Um, so he decided he didn't like a kayak and he wanted to do canoe. And he was going to, well, who shall I go to? And he came to me and he booked two days. And he's one of the three most awkward learners I've ever seen in my life. Um, my career spans a lot of people. And I've been by and I'm talking about learners who want to learn, not people being told you're going to do this session because you're an instructor. You need to go and do this qualification. These are yeah. people who want what you're giving. Um, and he had broken his femur in a motorbike accident and said, I can't kneel. So I was absolutely, you know, once I'd, I'd said at the end of a couple of days, I said, look, if you can't kneel, you're not going to be able to do the things you want to do. Oh, so this is a guy who then goes back home. He's re- early 50s. He's retired. He's making a fortune on a tech company. Uh, he's not rolling in money. He's careful. 
but he goes yep. back home. He practices kneeling hour after hour at home so he can get some flexibility back into his legs. And within a month, he was able to kneel for periods of time. So he's having to do with pain and exercise. Trying to communicate with this guy. I show him things. I get hold of his paddle and I manipulate him and his paddle and push him into things. I explain things or every single way. I use every bloody trick I've ever learned in my life. And it doesn't work. He just doesn't get it. And okay. then you get, you get little breakthroughs. And I'm thinking, is he ever going to? This is this is me. One of the most highly experienced coaches in the country. I'm thinking, is this guy ever going to learn this stuff? And I work on things. And he said, I'll, I'll book some more lessons in, in, in a week's time. Okay, I'll see you in, in week, 10 days. I had a quiet patch. It was great. Come back next time. He can do it. Because what he's done, he's gone out on the canal and done it and done it and done it and done it and done it. And eventually, you know, he spends a lot of money with me through this winter. But in the end, we laugh at each other. I start explaining something and this look, blank look comes over his face and I just burst out laughing and he laughs at me. We just know there's a communication thing here. It just does. This is on the other side. I have to tell myself this is a highly intelligent man. He ran a tech company big enough and well enough. He sold it and a house in London with enough money never to have to work again. Yeah. But it'd be very easy to say this guy's thick. This guy's this. And, and again, this is a mistake very often in our world that we can mistake. We are whatever level we work at. Generally, we are the expert for our clients. And what we sometimes have to remind ourselves is that in their own little world or in their own big world, in his case, they're experts and intelligent people. And it was just it was just fascinating to work with this guy over this over this period of time. And it, if you look at him now, he's as good as, you know, most canoe leaders in a boat. You know, he, he's got out and because that's what he wanted. And, and so the, there's a level of stubbornness there. And, and it, was a, it was a useful reminder to me. I've had these through my career. Don't underestimate people. You know, you're seeing a snapshot of two days. You might get some young buck who's extremely able and just picks things up really easy. And your, your, your day is going and you just give them the ideas eight times. You see them a year's time. They're not doing it. They've forgotten it. They're not interested. I mean, you get equally able people who, who take off. But what you see on the day as an instructor isn't relevant to what's going to happen into the future, because that's up to them, not up to me. And my job is to find out where, where they're at with this. Yeah. So stubborn bastard learners. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really fascinating. I think that's I think a lot of people would high, hold you in very high regard as well for your for your coaching experience and, and knowledge. And so it's really it's it's really nice for, for someone who in my position to to hear a story like that and go, Yep, there are times where you've got you're scratching your head a little bit as well and going, Okay, how how can I, I work this? Yeah, it's a real problem when um, people come to watch me coach in that what they're watching is the result of a whole career of analysing and looking at things. Yeah. And and what they don't realise, you know, I, I can think of a case where a woman, it's a long time back, you know, certain, certain things are such important les lessons to you, the coach, the individual that you never forget them and they might be 30 years ago but they are they change your thinking at that moment 
Um, this was this a change in thinking? Probably no, not necessarily. But it, but it, but it explains something I think very well. She'd failed a coach award, and one of the reasons she'd failed was her forward paddling in kayak. They didn't tell her what was wrong with her forward paddling, but they told her that was one of the issues. She came to me for some coaching, and she was quite upset. You know, as a lot of people are when they fail things, but the the feedback hadn't been um specific enough to be helpful they're given a broad brush feedback rather than here's your issue go and sort this one out okay, so if, yeah. if i fail somebody um which which is a different thing on a leadership award or a coach award i try to you know, i'm always conscious they paid the same money as the person that passes but they're yeah, not yeah. away with a certificate and how I deal with that next bit is really important. And they don't always want to hear. So I always want to point out what's at the right standard, uh, what the patterns were that caused the failure, not a one-off incident. It's generally a pattern. And but the trouble is a lot of assessors will use a one-off part of that to explain. Now I want, I'll say, here's the pattern, and this, this is why that happened in that situation. And then other things that they need to strengthen. So I feel I owe them a lot. So, but I didn't feel she'd got specific enough information. But anyway, I'm watching her forward paddling and there's something not right. So that's that's a good starter. You get a gut reaction. And I'm going, I'm going through, you know, nothing's leaping out at me. So I'm going through my tip list. And I spent 30, 40 minutes, maybe, maybe 30 minutes trying to sort it out. There was a there was a strange little flick in one of the wrists. And at the end of that, I went and this is how she'd paddled for years. And this is what so it'd become disguised. If you watch a beginner doing certain things, you pick it up very quickly. But when somebody's paddled for quite a lot of years and done, and she'd done some distances, and what it was, she wasn't releasing the wrist, the hand grip. So when she was actually um, rotating the paddle, she was doing the rotation with both wrists all the time, and it caused a curious little skip in the in the forward paddling stroke. Now that took me, let's say, forty minutes to spot that first time. You come along to watch me couple you know a couple years later yeah and we're watching somebody i've never seen before and that little skips in there i go i know what that is but and you think bloody hell race really good what you don't see is the 40 minutes it took me to work out what was happening the first time and i and 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 so it, it you don't get to see my analytical powers i'm working in this world that i know there's what's going wrong it's likely to be this and it's very often you, I see this, so it's likely to be this. So you then get your normal solutions out and you use those. Comes a time when they don't work. That's when you start seeing the power of a really good coach or instructor and all sorts of levels. They start working around it, trying different things because they're into an area that they that, that they don't know. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And it's so it's that. The things that I do quickly, and you have to have this long buildup of analysis and looking at it, it, it folk to actually do it. And the other thing you've got to remember as a coach is you're only watching from the outside. So sometimes if I'm providing feedback to somebody in a, a physical sense, because I mean, there's the, you know, we can get onto coaching the psychological, being aware of the, the, the of that. Um, the what's saying there the um i only have an outside view of things 
So when I'm providing feedback to a client, and a critical piece of feedback is when they've got it right. Because when they've got it right, they need to know it's right. So they can yep. continue to practice doing it right. But the other thing I've got to be aware of sometimes is I'm only seeing it from the outside. So I might, the typical phrase I might use is, oh, that's really good. That Or that looks good from here. That looks good. And then I'll go, how does it feel? Okay. And sometimes I turn around and say, it feels really smooth, Ray. It feels good, right? We've ticked both boxes. Sometimes they say, oh, that doesn't feel good, Ray. That feels like there's a... Now, two things could be happening if they say it doesn't feel right. One, they could be doing it right, yep. but they're used to it, and they've got something else they're used to. So, you know, you've then got to reassure them. Or there's something else going on that I haven't spotted, and they're providing yep. me feedback. It's not working, so I now need to look at it and question them more about things. Yeah, so that, that analysis, I keep looking across here because you've provided some sort of um, questions on that. But we were talking about, it, it sounds all very technical. It's about a stroke or a move on a wave or how you run downwind or build a sailing rig, how you crosswind. There's all these technical aspects of it, but there's also the psychological aspect or the physiological one. And I work in Canada. I should be out there now. I should have just finished a 14-day trip with clients on the Porcupine. It was float plane in, float plane out. I should sit here and cry. And Lena and Maya should have flown out to Canada today to join me. And we were going off for a wilderness trip, you know, with my little 10-year-old daughter, her second wilderness trip in Canada in canoe. Um, and, you know, that's all gone by the by for the moment. But when we take clients into that environment... Um, a lot of them have never experienced that before to be committed. All, okay. the, all, the, all the risk changes. So a lot of them have got a bushcrafty sort of background. Either they've got sharp knives and saws and axes. Well, we, we don't take a lot of axes with us and we discourage axe use, to be honest. Okay. Uh, because I, I explain to customers if we're seven days into the wilderness and you put an axe into you we we've got a mobile we've got a satellite phone but we might not be able to fly you out from where we are we might have to get to somewhere else meanwhile i'll do the stitching do you really want me to do the stitching yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's the consequence of an accident putting a knife into your thumb here Okay, we can wrap it up and take you to the hospital. And even where I live, we can be at a hospital in 40 minutes or we can have an ambulance here in 20 minutes, 10 minutes. Do that in the middle of the wilderness in Canada and you're into a different world of pain and woe. And I'm trying to get people psychologically to adjust to the fact that you have to change your behaviours. And the other thing about it, a lot of people that are bushcrafters, for instance, walk into the woods and practice their skills and, in, and just chill out in the woods. Now you're doing after a, a day of portaging and canoeing in the rain. And actually, your, your, your ability to get a fire going and tarps up is really key now. But you're tired and you're using an axe or a saw or a knife and moving around on wet rock. Yeah. And so we've got to adjust them psychologically on that. And things like you, I, I did. So I've, I've paddled around wells twice. First time I did it 28 years ago in canoe groundbreaking 
Um, nobody did a bigger trip for 25 years in canoe on the sea. We did 400 miles on the sea and it hasn't been surpassed to Colin um, uh, Skeeth and his, his nephew Davis went round the whole of Britain two years ago. So for 25 years, it stood as one of the pinnacles of canoe in Britain. Um, sorry, I've gone off on a tangent now and I forgot where I was. Sorry, I, I kind of like, I just kind of have to encourage it to be honest there, because it, it's all just fascinating to me. Because we, we talk about um, risk and like adapting to those situations. Um, and then we obviously start going on to your, your, your longer trips as well. So so the second time I went round Wales, we got back. You got me back on track. Thank goodness there's somebody that's younger than me and has a brain that still works. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. My brain used to be like this at all ages. Uh, it's just my memory that goes. So I was actually employed to to run the trip ten years ago, and my and then we found Lena was pregnant, um, and so my daughter is due, and my daughter is born seven weeks before the trip. Um, I was 57 when she was born, so she was a bit of a surprise, fantastic surprise, really, really it, she's on the videos and stuff. Um, but when I start that trip, none of the guys that I'm guiding have done anything like that, the three guys of that scale. Um, and one of them, the most he's ever done is two nights camping on a trip, two nights. And the first part of a trip, you start hurting, you know, because you, you're working on the sea, you work with the tides and the weather. If the conditions are good, you go further. Um, if the weather's bad, that's when you have your rest on the shore. And psychologically for him, that was hard because he's hurting. He's hurting physically. Yeah. He's questioning, I've got 20 days of this or 25 days of this. And I've got to reassure him that this is normal that I'm hurting a bit as well. And the, what will happen is in four or five days time, that will go and will start disappearing. So that's not just a physiological thing, it's a psychological yeah. thing. And the same when we fly customers into a wilderness and some of our trips will start, a trailer will drop us at a launch point. But other of our trips, we go in by flood plane. Um, and that's, that's amazing, you know, I love, the float planes. One of the asides on that, very often the float plane you go in is normally older than the pilot you've got because they keep refurbishing the plane and they keep it flying and it's airworthy. But it's like going in, you know, some of the instrumentation is like, like a 1950s tractor on a farm rather than, yeah, than, than anything else. And I've gone in just below cloud level with an instructor, who's looking, a, a pilot who's looking at the, um, the tourist map so he can find his way from lake to lake. Um, but you fly with customers, you land, you unload, and everything's really busy. It's all been very exciting. And then the pilot pushes off, starts his engine up. The engine sound is tremendous. I love the sound of the engines. It taxis round, and then he takes off down the lake, goes. Sometimes they come back through, give you a wing waggle, and then they're gone. And then silence descends. You haven't got any tents up, you haven't got your gear sorted. And one of the things I love doing is just standing and looking at the customers at that point, because at that point they realize now that's it. They've got 14 days in the wilderness. They've got a journey of hundreds of miles. They've got portages. They've got rapids. They've got lining. And it, there's a, an awareness there and there's a real psychological impact on them. And again, as you 
as we start down this journey, you know, the, the, the psychological sides of that. I mean, the psychology is really important, whether you're teaching somebody to run a rapid. Um, as, as, as an aside on that, I've had a few people in canoe and kayak over the years who were really afraid of capsizing in a rapid. But I really oh, yeah. want to go back to this stuff. I want this. I want to be able to do this. What can I do, Ray? Well, let's get you in a wetsuit. Let's get you in a dry suit and let's go swimming. And you swim down the rapids. I've had to swim down alongside people, which I tend not to do nowadays. That's if you want to swim down it, you swim down it. It's great having young instructors come along to observe me because it's great. That's your job. Swim down there with them and swim them down the rapids. And, and so you get rid of that psychological fear of what happens when you're in the water. It can be a fear of being trapped in the boat. That's a different fear. But um, the, the fear of being in the rapids, well, let's swim you down. And the, the oddity is with nearly all of them, not all, but nearly all of them, when you then put them in the boat, they progress much more quickly because they have a better understanding of what the water does and where the water throws them, where the water pushes them and how they move across. Because I'll get them swimming across the current like a ferry glide. I'll get them swimming through a rapid feet first and then aggressively going for an eddy. And you just get them used to that movement. Now, if I had a perfect venue that I could design uh, with warm water and sunshine, I think I would pretty well, that's how I would teach running rapids. We'd go swimming first. But that's not the reality of working in Britain. So that's a rare person we do that with. Yeah. So there you are. Some more thoughts on, you know, the physiology and the psychology. You know, you've got the tactical, you've got the technical stuff of side of things. But you've also got these these big things of physiological and psychological uh, stuff. Yeah. But I noticed in your list, um, you, you, you asked, how do you deal with a client that um, needs feels they need to be coached in two ways? Okay, so just, just as a heads up for everyone listening. So, um, so I should say, so some, like with a lot of people that I, I do these, these chats with, they're kind of, I, like, I don't want people to go in blind and, and into these questions to give a, a bit of a prep. So like Ray's obviously been super prepared and got the, the list of questions that I sent across uh, before, so, which is brilliant. Like It was to stop me going off on too many tangents. <laughs> which, to be honest, I'm just kind of encouraging. To be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm enjoying it. The, but, the, the, the question, do you want to ask the question or should I read the question? Oh, you go for it. Go All for right. it. Right. So you said, what, um, how do you deal with a client that thinks they need to be coached in something versus what they need coaching in? That That's very usual. Um, but there's two aspects of that. One is what they actually, what they need to learn. Yep. That operates on lots of levels. They they can think they, they need to learn a certain, as, a certain technical aspect of how to paddle a canoe kayak or whatever or climbing. But when you look at them, you realize and you question, you realize and you see them in action, you realize they're not ready for that. They need a step before it. But what you have yeah. to remember, I'm not working for an organization. You know, I'm selling a service. So I can't just turn around. You, 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 yeah, this is what we're doing. I'll say, right, OK, here's the issue. This is what you want. But you actually need this first. This is going to help you more. Once we've done that, maybe you come back or maybe we can address it later. But this is what you need. So you've got to do a, You've got to sell it to them as an idea. And, and one of those is, yeah, um, 
I, I get quite a lot of folk come. So that's so that's where they've got a fit. So that tends to be technical days. They've come, this, this I need sorted out, right? They're already a paddler, I need this sorted out. The other one is I'll, I'll get parents who'll come. Um, we want to go paddling with our kids. What do we need to learn? And they can think it's about the paddle strokes, but to me, it's about the cold water. The fact that, you know, I, I'm saying, I, I said it to the guy yesterday because he's, he's had two days with me. And I said, yeah, when you're learning, can you swim to the side? Because you are going to end up in the water at some stage because you've made a mistake. We all do it, including myself. You end up in the water. Um, and it tends to be easy places because you've chilled out and you've done something. I mean, my, I, I sat on the, I was resting my knees and I sat on the rear seat of my boat. Somebody said, thank you. I just turned around and went straight over the side. Um, I was instructing a, a group of uh, leaders at the time, canoe leaders, and the gods were with me. That all the folk, nobody grabbed the camera fast enough. One guy did, but it jammed, and he was just like, "Yes, the gods are with me." So there was no evidence, so it didn't really happen. Even though I'm telling you right now, we all. So one of the things is telling them you can go in in easy places, and that you've got something very precious with you. So, you know, when my daughter was very young, I was out there paddling, but there were certain things I would, you know, going across Bala Lake in february with really cold water i would only go across in easy conditions i would be kneeling and i would be in company what are the chances of me going in very very low but what's the consequence litlands don't last long in the water yeah. uh, and you know so i'm trying to teach them about if i call it risk assessment because that's basically what it is we've given this very formal term to this concept oh risk assessment oh it's health and safety no it isn't Anybody who's good at the job is good at risk assessment. It's just now we're asked to put it down in writing so we can share it. And, yep. and in the centre, that can be really useful because, yeah, you, know, you if I go to work somewhere um, as a highly experienced person, I will spot all the normal things. But it might be something that only somebody who works in that venue constantly will have spotted. There's different so a site-specific risk assessment to me is really important because it's the things i wouldn't spot as a practitioner that i want to know about there's a loose boulder here or there's a blind spot here on the wall back up or there is this area of water under this weed the concrete slab is corroded if you push off in your kayak you're gonna somebody's gonna cut their hands i won't find that out until somebody cuts their hands so a risk assessment that is site-specific yeah. should have that in so I, when my daughter started walking and toddling around, I did a risk assessment for my garden. It wasn't written, but what I was doing was a risk assessment because there are drops in my garden where she would break and possibly be killed. But she would break, definitely. There are other ones where she's going to roll down the slope and get bruises and a bit of a battering, but she's going to learn. So it was as a, as a committed outdoor practitioner, where can she, where's the acceptable risks where she's going to learn? Where's the things I cannot allow to happen? Um, and, and so, you know, risk assessment is something that we, we do all the time. Um, where do we go from there? It's perfectly fine, Ray. So it immediately got me thinking, so before you were asking me a bit, a little bit about my my background and I said that I've been paddling for like three years uh, yeah. maybe doing whitewood kayaking um, and then before that I've mainly done land-based stuff 
so mountaineering, uh, rock climbing. And one of the things that put me off paddling for so long, which in my eyes is just a massive shame now because it's kind of opened my eyes to a lot more, more things. And one of those reasons was because I just enjoyed pointless rivalry. Like I just get really sucked into that. But <laughs> just for the sake. But one of the things that did put me off, which was a big barrier, was that uh, companies or employers that I'd, I'd worked with had always booked like a, a foundation safety and rescue training course, and it was always seemed to be in winter. Yeah. And so, it, in those situations, you know, when you talk about introducing a client to uh, a place where they're, you kind of want them to be able to push themselves a little bit, or allow for them to be able to make mistakes or fall in, like that's that course is is almost about getting wet at some point you know it's going to happen don't you? and you, so, you, you you started out in the in the sport and you haven't got the kit yeah and, absolutely and, so and, it was always like free it, it always felt freezing like it wasn't necessary but it was always really cold and a real shock and it just put look, you off or it put me off for a long time more than that, there's one of the things that irritates me some foundation safety and rescue courses push, push the fact that you've got to get the person out of the water really quick through the flooded boat into your boat and it's a joke and it's because of outdoor centers that were training people in really cold conditions now i'll point out to people if i'm in the middle of bala lake and you and somebody falls in you ain't coming in my boat um i will you stay you do as you're told you you get hold of mine i will empty yours i'll put you but i ain't gonna risk me so there's this other side Who, who's the important person here it's me i'm the rescuer i'm not going to risk it i've normally got kit in my boat what if there's two in my boat there's no room but I'm, you know what if i've got two kids in my boat i'm an instructor i'm not going to bring two other three kids into my boat it's not a method that works across the board it's a method i use in specific situations but it is not normally done because the water's cold. I don't care the water's cold. You've got 10 minutes of them being in the water before they're useless. That 10 minutes is when the hands and the legs, the hands stop being useful. So you've got to do your rescue quickly. You've got two or three minutes to get it over, done with and then back in a boat. Because in 10 minutes, the hands won't work. That's, that, that's normal in really cold water. Very soon after that, the arms and legs aren't gonna work because the temperature's dropped. Are they hypothermic? Well, probably not for another 30 minutes. I would say in even in any British cold water context, you still got 30 minutes before they're hypothermic. Um, and there's this, this obsession, got to get them out of the water. No, no. That, and the places where it's being done are safe places where they could swim to the side anyway. Put, put them out in the middle of a lake. You cannot risk the instructor. You know, they, stay, they might be cold. They might be freezing. They might be shivering. Tough luck. If you, if you want to keep them safe, they stay in the water until you've got an empty boat, put them in an empty boat. Make it clean and easy. Now, there are always exceptions. Yeah. Always exceptions. But by doing all that training in really cold venues with people that were that safety and rescue in cold venues is now lopsided a system, as far as I'm concerned, that people become obsessed about getting people out of the water. And it doesn't take into account this thing of who's the important one? self team swimmer in that order kit finally and and it's reversed it the swimmers become the victim is i don't like calling them a victim you know but let's say the, the swimmer yeah they become the important thing get them out of the water they get cold. no no the important thing is you 
make sure you don't end up capsizing because you brought somebody who's cold and cumbersome out of the water into a flooded boat. But there are always exceptions, and it's it's good to do. But going jumping back one before we uh, before we uh, jump around. I mean, we're coming close to an hour already. But um, yeah, <laughs> said said about with with clients who think they need to be coached in certain things, and when you look at them, you don't. So there's always a period of analysis at the start of the coaching session with somebody I don't know, and the reality is the first twenty minutes they're only warming up. And some of the things you see wrong in the first 20 minutes are going to actually disappear anyway as they become smoother. And I'll normally give them yeah. things to do. Yeah. So, you know, it's, so, you know, I don't I, war, I have to warn clients because sometimes they think I have a magic wand. Of, oh, Ray's here. Ray's going to sort me out immediately. No, no, I need to see you. You know, you might you come into the doctor's surgery, tell the doctor you've got a blah, 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 blah. The doctor's going to ask you questions the same here. And I'm going to see you. And then I'll see if that matches up with what you're telling me. But the other one that's been uh, been interesting is mainly with ready instructors, young instructors. They they were at one time they were beasted with this idea that there are these four learning styles, and you know preferences over visual, audio, and kinesthetic, and it's all to an extent nonsense. There's underlying truths and they're interesting concepts and ways of explaining things. But I've had people say, "I don't learn like this." Well, actually, you've been fed a load of tosh. If, you, if that's so you, you learn all of us learn by a mixture of things very successful paddlers like myself and performers are particularly well, coaches particularly uh, performers and coaches have learned by all the methods and it depends what i'm doing um because when it comes to like learning final cut pro to edit my films i'm a pragmatist i don't want to know all the theory i'm not a theorist I want to know a method that works, and I don't even want to know another method if it works well enough. Yeah. But when I've done a video, I will reflect on it, so I'm a reflector. Um, you know, I'm an activist. I get bored. You know, if somebody tries to coach me, and I get bored. I'm, 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 I'm like a naughty kid. I just <laughs> grin and I'm like, I'm doing it. Um, so I'm all of those things. But some people like to say, well, I've, I've, done, I've done the analysis. I'm this. But it's also certain things are best taught in certain styles as well. You talk about visual audio kinesthetic, which are really only ways of processing information. And I had a guy who told me right at the start of a session, he was a really nice guy, really enjoyed his company. I only learn by doing things right. Well, we all, we all learn by doing things. It's how you process the initial information to enable you to go and do it usefully. And I, you can imagine I use all sorts. Certain things are best learned by them going to experiment go and try this out, try different angles, come back, let's have a chat about it, let's do it. Other things, this is how it works. And this guy, I, I really sort of gave him a very active thing. I would I would give him a little bit, go, go and try it, go and do it, come back with questions, fire him off. And if it was useful, we'd keep moving. And then we were, I was teaching him um, a stern pry to accelerate. So power, big power stroke into a stern pry. Some people call it a power pry, but it's a power stroke coupled with stern pry. And he was a, a decent paddler in the canoe, but he only had a J-stroke and a stern rudder. He didn't have a power pry. So I said, right, you're going to need to learn this. And, and I, what I do is I, I sometimes it's off the shelf. It's the way I teach it. Just pull it off the ready shelf, plug it in, and it's the same every time because it works. And I do a demonstration at full speed and there is no possible way you can see the technical aspects of what's going on because it's done at full speed. That's important 
because the first impression needs to be what it actually is. If you do something slowly, psychologically, they take it on as slow. And then you're fighting forever to bloody get it to go fast. If you show them initially what you're aiming for, even if they can't see the technical aspects, then they've got the right picture. So correct speed in demos is right. It's like when I show a knot, you know, I do it. I very often will do the knot at full speed, how I tie it, show the fluency. Then I'll go back and then I'll start breaking it down and showing it. I'd so that with knots as well. That's fascinating that you do it with that. Like, because well, it's something that I've never considered before as as well. So I, it makes a lot of sense that you you frame it, uh, frame what what it is that you're yeah. teaching at that point as well. But the fact that you take it to doing it with knots as well, I think that's yeah. really and, and it's the key business does kick into knots. So when I start showing it at a slower speed, I don't normally talk to start with. I actually let them see it because the brain doesn't process the visual and the verbal well at the same time. Yeah, um, okay, yeah. So, I can, yeah, the brain, yeah, makes... the brain is very strange how it does things. So if, if I'm concentrating on something and somebody speaks to me, I very often have to say, sorry, what did you say? But they're speaking normally, but my brain isn't working in that aspect. It's working on this, whatever I'm concentrating on. Um, and when I'm performing well, in a move or something on water, I can't hear anybody else. They might shout at me, talk to me, irrelevant, I'm not going to hear it. Our brain focuses. So yeah, when I show a knot, I like to show it in silence, and then I can talk through it. So I very often do it at full speed. It's ain't like um, high women's hitch for towing. Then I'll do it at full speed because it tells you how easy it is. There you go. Wow. Right. Now I'll, now, now I'll come back. Let's show you what I did. Now, on that one, I actually need to give some talking and say this is this is the load rope. They need to know the load rope. And they need to know the rope that's not loaded. But then I can just do it all slowly. They can concentrate on watching and, and do that. Um, but go back to this guy. He's very much an activist in his own mind. He finds a lot of instructors and coaches really hard to deal with because they just talk at him and it doesn't work for him. But with this, he said, right, so I've done my full speed demo. He said, right, I'll go and have a go. I said, no, you're not. I said, you haven't got a clue what I did. I said, this time you're going to watch me and listen. And because I built a relationship, you've got to build a relationship. You can't just foist things on people to have a relationship. And I yeah. said, right, I'm going to run through it. And I ran through it. I would normally do with slower, some chatting, some real explanation of the technical aspects. And I said, now you can go and try it. Ten minutes later, he came back. He said, you were right, Ray. So what I did is I took him out of his what he felt was his preferred style. But then you see, this is the other thing that I believe strongly is that people have got to own these things. Now, some people get the mistaken idea like they own it by discovering it themselves. Why are they paying me? Why are they paying me? Because I've got technical expertise and tell them what they need. Now, sometimes it is useful for them to, to, to discover things themselves. So coming down a river, once I'm happy with people and I know the section, I'll say, right, you're out in front. You choose your eddies. So they're, they're making choices. They're making their angles. I can give them feedback on what they're doing. I can ask them questions. It's ownership. If, you know, let's let's set up, let's do some ferry glides. You know, I, and what I'm very concerned about and what gave this guy 
the power with a stern prize, I then varied his practice. So if the skill is used in a varied situation, then your practice that you give your student must be varied. And as soon as you can give them ownership of the practice, it's brilliant. So, yes, in certain contexts, ferry gliding in a kayak, uh, them discovering the angles is really powerful. So, yeah, guided discovery, whatever you want to call it, let them loose, let them discover it. It's got real power to it. How the hell are you going to uh, discover a stern pry? It's a technical thing. Let's give it to them. But then how do we give them ownership? We give them practice in lots of situations. Um, Eddie turns. Eddies are varied. So we must give them as many different eddies as possible. And we must move away from us deciding the eddy and the angle and them deciding and having ownership. So I'm really about giving people ownership, but it's not this simplistic, or oh, they must discover it himself, which the coaching in, in paddle sport went through about 15 years ago. They, everything was about them discovering the answer. People pay me good money to give them the answer. I've also got to give them the ownership of that answer. Yeah, so very practice. Yeah. Brilliant. So there you go, another one on the coaching front. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. No, it, it's it's really fascinating to, to hear all this. Um, uh, I, I'm learning a lot from this. Like I'm learning loads, and I just there's lots of just gems of, of information that you can now. So hopefully those that are listening as well are picking up on on all this because it's it's brilliant. It's fantastic. It's really, well, the, really the oddity of all this though is that I'm actually giving up teaching coaching. Um, British canoeing have made yet another change in all the terminology and the formats of everything they do, and I've gone through three or four changes over my time of terminology and changes. And I just went, you know, it's a very competitive market. And I just thought, to be honest, I can't be bothered this time. Yeah, so I'll keep in touch with all the theories. Um, so it's been one of the massive highlights of my career, teaching people how to teach or to guide different things. Um, but this time I thought, you know, do you know what? I, I've got enough interesting work elsewhere that, and I've got other things that are taking my energy, YouTube, learning to edit and all this. I just cannot be bothered to learn all the new terminology. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong. I don't yeah. think what they've done is wrong or the coach. It's just like, well, maybe it's time for me, you know, and this is a curious thing coming to the end of a career. Which bits do I let go? And teaching people how to teach has been, you can, you can hear it in my voice when I talk about coaching, has been one of the highlights of my career. But it's come a time when oh, let's let's let go. If somebody wants to talk coaching to me and how it works, that's fine. And then they can sort how it works into modern terminology. Um, but I don't feel I need to be the person that does that anymore. Um, there's enough. There's enough there for me. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, am I bitter? Bit annoyed, but, you know, it's the reality. Things move on. And at a certain point, some of us older guys go, yeah, enough, enough. There's enough changes. I'm not going to bother with this one. Yeah, and go off and do our own thing. I'll keep going on the leadership awards, still guiding, still doing lots of other things. So there you are. So it, it, sounds, talking... like, it sounds like it's coming from a place today that you've got options as well. And you've got that. I mean, I, was, I don't. I'm trying not to put words into your mouth, but this is it's just how it how it came across that you've, you've got other options and things that you're very passionate as well. If you just want to focus on on more instead, but is that? I think that I think it's that it's it's the realization I would have to put quite a lot of work in to move into this modern system. Yeah. To translate, 
translate all my passions and ideas into mo more modern speak, if you like, um, and, and align them. And, I, and with the changes in the past, I've learned a lot. You know, it, you know, I have learned a lot with those changes. It's made me, I've always been in, fascinated um, right back to the days of uh, early coaching in paddle sport. Um, and I, I got interested in, um, there's a, a book called um, The Inner Game of Skiing, where the, it's one of the earliest theories of how people learn and conscious and non-conscious side of the brain. Absolutely phenomenal text. The, um, um, the, the, the guy wrote The Inner Game of, it's a guy called Galway, and he wrote um, The Inner Game of Tennis. He was a tennis star as a youngster. And, and I could but the inner game of skiing is better. He did it with Bob Kriegel, Kriegel, I think it is. Um, quite proud of my memory at my age to be able to come back to that. Uh, and, and, and it was about skiing. And, it, and skiing is about uh, speed and fear. So the psychological, the edge, the turning. And I took so many lessons directly from that book into, into my paddle sport coaching. Um, so, you know, I, so right from those days, and he, he talked of it as self one, the conscious, the self two being the non-conscious. And it was very much based on stuff in Zen Buddhism um, and the martial arts and calligraphy in Japan. Even the, I, I even understood the tea ceremony. You and I can't do the tea ceremony because we interrupt the flow. Um, I've read things like uh, Zen and the Ways to look at the philosophy behind it all. So I've always been interested in how our brains and this was this was really before the western world got into coaching science as such you know the 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 communist countries in eastern europe were into it much before us so gradually over time all this coaching science has come in and, and it has influenced me so i'm not decrying it it's given me a greater understanding it's just now feels a step i don't want to take there are as you say youtube and editing and stuff like that um i'm that's what is fascinating. That's so often my conversations with people. My missus gets bloody fed up with it. Um, <laughs> she's not one to be shy, I tell you, when she's fed up with something. So there are other things that are taking my energies. And I've got to look at where I put that energy now. Um, so, you know, the, the energy is limited. And, and the time and the reality is the time of being able to do it is now limited. The body is getting old, the knee is shot, um, which affects lots of things. So I don't go and do the walking in the mountains now, uh, yeah. but I still, eat, I still eat as if I did, um, which isn't good for me. Um, so, again, you know, one of the things, you know, hopefully younger instructors coming into it will listen to this sort of conversation. You know, if they've got any sense, they're trying to get ideas from everywhere. But I am, and I will go back to it, I'm in the end game of my career. And, I, you know, I want to influence things for a while to come. And I want to have fun for a while to come. And I want to confound some of the younger coaches and instructors for a while to come as well. That that gives me great glee. If I can pull forth on, the, on just by guile and, and, and uh, experience, that, that's one of the great <laughs> pleasures in life. But if they beat me at a move, I can say, are you really competing with an old age pensioner? So it de deflates their achievement. And I have to remind them if I beat them that I am an old age pensioner. You've got to keep people in their place on these things. 
I do try to I do try to help them a lot as well. But there's a there's a very mischievous side of me as well. Um, I can't I can't help having a bit of fun with it. Yeah. Um, so you, the other thing you would uh, one there that interests me, if you've got the time, you, you said, do I ever analyze my own paddling um, or are, are you always yeah. doing this? Does it impact your own? Yes. <laughs> um, there isn't a day that I'm on the water that I don't practice forward paddling. At some point of the day, I will have, you know, I'm going up the lake with a customer and I will just, you know, I'm getting old, I'm losing rotation, putting on weight. I will work on my forward paddling every single day I'm on the water at some point because it's so fundamental to everything I do. Um, if I run a rapid, then I'm going to I'm going to have a plan of how I'm going to do that rapid, how I'm going to use an eddy, how I'm going to use a weight. Of course, I'm analysing it. If I don't get it right, I uh, don't necessarily beat myself up, but I certainly mark myself down. Um, I have little things like, yeah, all, all the time I'm, I'm looking and doing checks and whatever. When I'm really, when I'm, you know, there are conversations, you know, I have great conversations with clients in the right context. Part of that is inner game. It's distracting them from what they're doing if we're having a conversation so I can actually see what they've learned. Does that make sense to you? Because if they're talking to me, they're not thinking about what they're doing as we paddle along so I can see what they've actually learned properly. Um, and, it, it, you know, as an aside to that, if I send somebody off to do, uh, if we had a forward paddling session with clients earlier in the day, but now I'm getting them to do paddle forward, bow rudder, come back, bow rudder, go back. What they don't realise initially is they're practising their bow rudders, their turning strokes at the end. What I'm looking at is their forward paddling because they're not thinking about it because they're distracted um hello yeah leave me in peace for a minute Maya <laughs> um cameo appearance from Maya there <laughs> yeah I did a, a chat with Kevin Callan the Canadian guy and I didn't realize what she because I did it in the other room and she's got a little playstation and everything near, near a computer and everything nearby i didn't realize she was doing little dances at times and kevin wasn't telling me what was going on behind me so i've got my light <laughs> this time <laughs> she was stealing the limelight from me yeah yeah so yeah it's um the the other thing that i've been incredibly lucky with with this analysis and i, I say to to young instructors or coaches you know, building their experience you've got to find out what you do you know, nowadays, video is so easy. Um, it never was through most of my career. Um, and I, but I was blessed with a client base that over the years has been incredibly observant. And because of the relationship I have, they're also very straight with me on the whole. There's a few people that are in awe, so they tend to stump. But others say, Ray, do you realize you? And so, I mean, so an instructor would teach something. But it's not what they do. And what they do is actually better. But what they're teaching is what they sort of remember they think they were taught. Yeah. yeah? Um, and I also, you know, on whitewater, wave or a move or whatever, um, one of the things I encourage people to do, and I'll do it myself unless I really know the spot, is I'll say, go do it for yourself. 
you know, there's a wave to surf that's reasonable. Go and do it for yourself first. Go and check. Go and check the venue that is suitable, but go and check what you do. You're not demonstrating. And in fact, when I when I do it myself with clients, I'm just going to go and try a couple of things out. They can watch, but I'm not demonstrating. So I'll go and suss it out. Suss out what I don't need generally to suss out what I'm doing, but a less experienced coach may need to suss out what they're doing. Then come back, clear your head. You know what you've done. You've reminded yourself what you're up to. And then yep. you say, okay, now I'm going to go and demonstrate, folks. Watch this. Do you, do you see that? And some people won't allow themselves that. They think either they think they shouldn't or they think they already know it. But it's sometimes worth going to check that the situation is as easy as you think it is or as good as you think it is. But also check what you do and the reality of what you do and not sort of. Um, yeah, I've, so many times I've seen people teach shite. But actually, when you ask them to do it themselves, they're good. But that's not what they're teaching. They're teaching half memory of what they were taught. And, and so self-analysis. And I say so often with my customers over the years, they would turn around. And also I've worked with people that have been British squad level, you know, but they come to me for something else. They're not shy. They tell yeah. you what they think you're wrong. And if I go back, you know, 25 years ago, I can still remember the times and certain individuals. Sorry, Ray, you're wrong. And I was big enough to listen to them and go away and play with it and learn from it. Um, and that's hard as a coach. You know, and I, I, I've got things coming back to my memory now. It wasn't always easy for me. But in but in the majority of cases I remember, they were correct and I was wrong. So you have to have an openness. So so with all those people who have watched me over the years. And so I've said, you do it like this. And somebody said, but no, actually, Ray, that's not what you do. Oh, let me go and do it again and then check what I'm doing. Nowadays, you can do it with video. So does does your, you know, if you want to be a, a coach, you, you need you need all those coaching abilities. You need that ability to get on with the, the customer, the client. So I'll say they've come for this, but you realize they need that. Well, that's a negotiation. They're paying money. So you need a relationship with them. You have to negotiate. But there is a so you need those coaching skills. You need the psychological understanding, the physiological understanding. But then in addition, you do need that technical basis to what you're teaching. And if you're fairly neat at what you do, go and do it, get it filmed and go and see what do you actually do? Is it what you think you're going to teach? Better still, watch really good people. Well, not better still. Another aspect is watch really good people. And if you can, get clips of film. And so my forward paddling is massively influenced by watching film of sprint OC1 and OC2 paddlers. It changed my concept of forward paddling importantly. So what I wrote in the British Canoe Union handbook, technically on forward paddling, my opinion of that is it's crap. It's wrong. But it was a blind alley we went down. In my book, I feel I've got what is correct. But that was influenced by watching top class Olympic world class athletes performing. And I looked at that and I went, okay, so what I'm talking been saying isn't right. It can't be watching these people. And and so it's interesting on a river, I'll be in canoe, but if I see a good kayaker coming down, I'll stop my group and say, watch this one. Because you can see but I might know them or I might 
watch the style and I go, this is worth watching. Let's stop him watching because we're all in boats. But it's fascinating to see how many coaches get wrapped up in their own little, I'm teaching in a kayak this. And you see somebody good goodbye and they, they don't even glance at them. They don't ask the group to look and they don't even glance at them. But there's me sitting in the edge saying to my group, watch this one. This is good. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do that a lot. So I, I would urge people to look at people that are good, get film of themselves and check what you're teaching matches what you do. And sometimes most times you'll be better than what you're teaching. And sometimes you're actually got something wrong that you need to sort out. But get it filmed, get it sorted, cut cut the pathway down. Yeah. That's fascinating. See, right? <laughs> so I do it like <laughs> and I'm conscious of having my paddling analyzed for 35 years now i've been analyzed any any customer there's so many of them that have got the ability to watch me and say yeah that doesn't match up right or what are you doing there and sometimes when i say what are you doing there you haven't told me about that I said, do what and they say and I said, let me just do it again so i get it in my head what i'm doing yeah okay right what i'm doing is because yeah. we're non-conscious performers most of the time if you're good a lot of what you do is without thought. And again, that's back to how, if I want to really check where customer is, get them to concentrate on something else and then see what the other elements are. So, you know, like the forward paddling when they're concentrating on the turning because they're not thinking about it. So you get what's actually embedded. Yeah. Happy with that? So did you so have happy. So happy. So did you have some quick fire questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've got i've got some quick fire quick fireish questions if, if you still got the time that is i'm very yeah, conscious of that but like yeah yeah, yeah. I, well all right then we'll, we'll start with some quick fireish questions I'll try relatively quick fire answers for you <laughs> we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens um so uh, these are questions which i've asked everyone that i've uh, spoken to so far um so first of all favorite outdoor space to be Canadian wilderness. That's straight away. No, absolutely. Um, um, I love my local places. Um, I love the D. I love Flintegid and the Mauvac. Canadian wilderness, and that that now gives me a dichotomy because of the the, the problem of flying and you know global uh, warming and climate. Yeah. And. You know, I, I really don't know where to go on this anymore. Um, you know, I'm committed for the next years. My body's going to fall apart. I won't be doing it in five years, six years time. Um, but the Canadian wilderness, because particularly Ontario, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba. Yeah, and if you go there, that's where the canoe comes from. And you understand the why of the canoe. You know, it's all this thing of portage in lining. That's what you do there. It's a wilderness travel you know, portaging skills, the whole, the whole bit and pieces. And I, and it's just like, it's fantastic. I've learned so much there. I've enjoyed so much there. Yeah. The Canadian wilderness and particularly through Ontario and Manitoba, but I'm going to Saskatchewan next. So there you go. Sorted. All right then. So favorite piece of gear or equipment. Um, I've got to do two on this. And I, I could give you a whole whole list. Um, my paddle by Freebird, which is a whitewater big dipper, 
and it's because I was so involved with the, you know, the, um, they did a company uh, name change, but I was so I was involved. They, they gave me a uh, some paddles to try out. They gave me a paddle they called the Dipper, and it was really nice. And I said, "Blade's too small for me." So within two weeks, they'd made a bigger version, which they called the Big Dipper, and really enjoyed it. Um, and then they were talking about making a white water paddle uh, of wood, and they were looking at very traditional, uh, not to, a, a very normal white water shaped blade, so flat square at the end and I said well why I said look you've got the skills the original whitewater paddle is a beaver tail um, um, but we generally don't use it and you know they used it because it's a big blade that's what they used to steer in rapids traditionally before modern times so there's lots going for it but it's difficult to make it strong enough and they came up with a phenomenal paddle beautiful they stiff they had to uh, put more weight into the shaft to balance the blade and it's a stiffer shaft so it, it really it suits me um, and it's got a big blade which is glass covered with glass rope around the sides um, it takes me about 18 months two years to break one uh, which is good going because you know I'm, I'm used I, I use paddles they're not playthings. you know some paddles will last me 20 years but not a white water paddle and I love being involved in it. I love the paddle. It is my all-time favourite. As soon as I'm in white water, as soon as I'm in a strong wind, that's the paddle I've got hold of. Yeah, use other things for different purposes. And then I've got to say a canoe, and I've got, you know, I've loved canoes from Winona Prospectors. Being involved with um, Venture, which are a branch of Piranha, and helping, being one of the people that helped design the Avon. And it's not my perfect boat. I could still design my perfect boat, but probably nobody's going to do that for me. But it's extended my career in white water. It's it's knocked a grade off <laughs> for me, and and it suits my style as well. Yeah, it really suits my style. I like I love a boat that requires you to work the boat. Um, you know, a lot of people would call it twitchy, and it is twitchy. I'd call it responsive. It responds to the paddle. But if you haven't got your paddle doing anything, it's going to twitch. So there's a, yeah. So when you're poling, it's quite a hard boat to pole. It's a very stable boat. Um, if I was 20 years younger, I'd be doing some good stuff in it with the pole. I don't like falling out now. And if you're a poler, you do fall out. I can't take the hits anymore. You know, I'm, I just don't want the bruises, the batters anymore. Um, so it, and, and with a pole, you've got your pole in the air some of the time as you replant. And it, at that point, it's twitchy. It's hard control whereas when you've got when you've got a paddle in white water then you can keep your paddle in at critical moments and so the twitchiness becomes responsiveness and i love it for that and it's made paddling harder white water much easier for me at this stage of my career um so that that's for that and as a tandem boat with either my my little girl up front and there's videos of her up front and she's good and my missus uh, lena is absolutely bloody awesome she's a She's got her Advanced Leader Award, and she's now going to be running uh, Canoe Leader Award. She's just got the go-ahead to do that. So she's pretty bloody awesome. But she, but she is the best bow paddler I've ever had in a canoe. Um, and we have bits of friction with our relationship. It's an interesting one at times. In a boat, we dance. We dance. And we make people sit up and look. Um, and... Uh, Getting into a boat with her is a joy. You know, you sort of 
we agree what we're doing and then she gets on with her end and I get on with my end and she's bloody good at it and and, and so she's great in a boat solo but as a bow paddler so so the Avon suits us as a pair on white water so my paddle and the the, the venture Avon are my two bits of kit and I wouldn't like to choose I, between them. yeah I paddle another boat but I'd have to have my freebird paddle yeah all right, that sounds magical. Love yeah. it. So good. Um, okay, a good instructor always has. So if you finish that sentence, so what does a good instructor or, or guide or, or coach uh, always have? An open mind and the ability to be hard when necessary. So again, two things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, it, it, so you could look at bits of kit and whatever. <sighs> Depends on the environment, to be honest. Um, you know, I'd hate to be without my tarps or, or an axe in the correct environment or a good bushcraft knife. Um, but I think, you know, a good instructor needs an open mind. They, they need to see possibilities, uh, both in the client, in the environment, and, and, and not get locked in too early on something. But the second one is the ability to be hard, to know when you've got to push. You've got to push the client. You've got to push in that environment. And I can think of cases both on snow and ice where it's got really nasty and you don't want any of this gentle, bloody instructor sort of how you don't care how you are. This is how it is now. Same on the water. I've pushed hard. I've had somebody on the verge of hypothermia, but I knew that there was a campsite that would then. And I just pushed hard and brutally because I knew I could keep him warm enough to get there and then we could get it sorted properly. And there's a hardness in me at times like that. And with the best people I work with, my, my colleague, Paul Kirtley, I work with in Canada. You know, so I think, you know, open mindedness in a lot of situations, you don't get locked in. You see other possibilities, both with people, environments, decision making. But at a certain point, you've got the ability as an instructor to turn hard, core, look in your eye. People aren't going to bloody argue and you're not going to take anything. This is how it's going to be. Yeah. And I, and I always like to see that in an, when I used to employ instructors years back, I always like to see that ability. You get young instructors who are really nice, really good with groups. But the first time I see them having to make a big decision, even though the client wants to go on, they turn the group back because of conditions or they push this because of the conditions. Then I chill out and relax. I know they've got that that steely core that you need in those environments rather than just being nicely nice all the time. Yeah. Super I love the answer. That yeah. is fascinating. I, like, just the particularly that that being the being hard and, and direct when needs because actually, to think about it, that's not something which. So, not in the environment that I work in. I've, I've worked with. You've got to be dental center, but but I can see how much value that would that would have, and it doesn't seem to be. It's not something that comes up in conversation much when we look on the leadership spectrum from sort of um, so you're still leading but you're down towards the left of the spectrum so you're really involving the group in the decision making and, and the like um, though I did have a Dutch group I guided sea kayaking for donkey's years until I decided that I wasn't doing enough sea kayaking to guide them anymore and they invited me to the Netherlands to say goodbye they flew me Maya and Lena out there to one of their big dues and they looked after us for a weekend, paid for our expenses. Um, 
and I was chatting to them and, and I said, yeah, but I, I gave you choices. Yeah, you gave us choices, Ray. But you always made it clear which one we should choose. <laughs> Um, but that's a different thing. So, but you can involve people within decision making. And when we do stuff in Canada, we try to do that. They don't always want that. You get some groups who really want, and some individuals want to be involved in the decision making. We retain the overall authority, but they want to be involved. So, you know, you're down that left side of the spectrum, but you should have the ability to go to the right side and be close to Attila the Hun. You, you don't lay cities to waste and piles of skulls but you make the decision and this is how it's got to be. And there's also clients will expect that in a, some situations. Um, they, they don't want you pussyfooting around. They are beginning to be aware. Hopefully they're beginning to be aware, but they're not always. Yeah. I've had a few of those. It's one of the dangers of being instructed. They place too much reliance on you in a serious situation. Um, and they don't realise how serious it is because you're going to look after them. And I've had that conversation in the pub afterwards. And I'm going, oh, my God, you just didn't realise, did you? And if you work in these big environments, it's going to happen. You'd be on snow and ice and all of a sudden it isn't what it's meant to be. You know, I've had water, um, super cool water coming up the cliff and freezing on our rope, our gear and us. You just got to get out of there. And afterwards, the client said, and I, I said, saying, you, you really remain relaxed and calm. He said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I was with you, Ray. I knew I'd be all right. I'm going, little did you know how close we were to the edge. So, yeah. so you've, got, you've got that. But there is a, a danger when you realise you've got to go hard, but the clients don't. Then you can get, then you've got to handle that with some de degree of explanation. But you've got to be able to move about that spectrum. You know, any leader who operates in one area of it. I, and again, going back to when I employed people, I needed to see that normally they would, their coaching is down that group centered line a lot of the time, particularly development work with school kids. But they've got to have that ability to move in a, in a tight situation to being hard. That's what looks after the client. Yeah. I've had rivers go mad on me, and it's just like, this is how it's going to be, folks. Yeah. You do it by the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last question then. Last quick fire right. question. Okay. So, best advice for an outdoor instructor? Because you you've given so many different gems like scattered throughout all of it. Uh, what would be the the top okay. thing or the first thing that comes to mind? Right. Okay. I think you have to differentiate. So, if you're going to work, so it's a lot of the work you do at Robin Wood. Uh, yeah. Robin's Wood. Uh, Robin Wood, yeah, yeah, uh, is about the abilities with groups and giving them ownership, getting them to try things. And, and on that sort of work, I'd say be very clear what your objective is. So, is the objective teamwork? In which case, are you setting it up so you're not interfering? They're not looking to you. So, in a gorge, you might have a primary school group. And the teacher says they're useless at helping each other. They're all individualistic. Well, you set it up. They help each other and you don't help unless you really, really have to. Because the moment you help, they realise they can step out of it. And so you set up your gorge walk. So it's going to be truly not lip service about helping each other. Um, it may be that uh, we had a case of very similar sort of work, working with uh, teenagers out of work. Um, could be long-term unemployed, not particularly, not listeners, and they just wouldn't listen to us. 
So we had a night exercise. We'd drop them off and they had to. And so we just said, OK, I will give you the instructions. And, and the timekeeping was used to start dead on the dot is seven. I will take a chair. I'll put it in the centre of the room and I will start talking. I will wait for no one. I will not raise my voice and I will not repeat it. You get the information once. If you haven't got the information, you're going to have problems tonight. And so people listened. It was the only time on the course they listened. But they can, <laughs> so, you, so you can just change what you're doing to suit what your objective is. And your objective could be just we're going to have fun. There's nothing wrong with just saying it's going to be fun. We're going to get soaking wet. We need them to be safe, but it's going to be fun. But very often when I'm going into that sort of group context, I don't some schools have come and they said we want some teamwork and this and this. And they're just, it's lip service. But if you truly want to do it, go into a session knowing what your objective is. Um, so I, I would say that on on that one, Oops, I was going to go somewhere else with this, with with that. And then on the hard skills one, again, you just you, you need to know what you're, you're you're trying to achieve with it. If you've got a clear picture in your head, then you, you then you can move to it, and you can use different routes to get there. So there you go. Yeah. Great. That was fantastic. Thank you so so much uh, for taking the time to chat. Like, um, I, I want to ask, like, because I, I ask everyone, but if there's anything, have you got any final words or, or questions that you'd like to ask uh, uh, the audience uh, before we no, wrap things up? A final thought. Yeah, a couple of final thoughts. You know, I've done this as a career. I did four years in a school, but I was employed because of the outdoor side. So basically from the age of 21 to now I'm 67, this is what I've done as a job. Um, if you want to do it at a high level and you want to do the coaching work and the, the, or the climbing work, the guiding work, you need experience. You know, there's no two buts about it. it it's, it's about having experience. And so get out there and do it. And you, you've got to have a passion for the activity if you're going to do that. If you work in some centres, then it's fine. You, you need a certain technical skill, but you've got to just enjoy working with those people. And the final thing on it, you've got to like, you've got to accept that it's a job. And some bits of it are incredibly repetitious. And it doesn't matter at what level you work with the kids, you know, they're going to ask the same questions every week or twice a week when you get a new group or with adults. Um, you know, when I'm coaching, there's long periods I can do nothing. I'm waiting for that client to absorb what I'm giving them. Um, and it can be a long day. And, you know, it's, you know, I'm obviously enthusiastic about what I do, but there are elements of that job that are damn right boring, but you're being paid and it's a job. And, and you, I think at the end of the day, you've got to keep that passion, but you've got to remind yourself that you're doing a paid job and you've got to accept those other sides of the job as well as everything else. Just going out fun. It's, it's, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my career. Um, I would... I would have started using walking sticks far earlier. I'll tell you that to protect my knees. But other than that, I wouldn't change my career. I've had, I've had a lot of fun and there's still things to do. So an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Ray. Uh, it's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. So I've, I've learned so, so much. I'm sure everyone that's listening will, will get a lot out of this as well. So thank you so, so much. Um, Not at all. Yeah, so for, for people that still listen, so thank you so much for, for taking the time to listen as well make sure to check out all the race stuff online like i said it's going to be links uh, scattered down in the the show notes also 
make sure, like, I really urge you to make sure to check out uh, Ray's YouTube channel as well. Uh, there is so much useful stuff on, on there as well. Um, it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. Um, but other than that, make sure to like, share, and subscribe to all of Ray's stuff. If you want to do that for mine, then great. But definitely do that to Ray's stuff. And until next time, take care. Thank you very much. Ray. So once again, a huge thanks to Ray for taking the time to chat, but also thanks to you, the listeners, or whether you're watching it as well on YouTube, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. If you're interested in taking part in an outdoor instructor chat yourself, then just drop me a message. But also, if you've just got questions that you'd like me to ask those that I chat with, then yeah, just drop me a message as well. Other than that, I've got lots more resources on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, so make sure to check that out as well. And this is also available as a podcast, but if you're listening as a podcast already, then you already know that. But thank you so much for taking the time to watch and or listen. And until next time, take care.